We're going to turn again to Luke's Gospel in chapter 4. And for those who weren't here this morning, and for those who were but have forgotten what we talked about, I'll just recapitulate very briefly. And while you're turning there, can I just say there are some books that I've written that are available on a table at the back on your way out if you're interested. There's a commentary on Matthew, another one on Joshua. Uh, there's a couple of books here, Christ for Real, Alive in Christ, which go together really, which talk about what it means to live in that union with Christ where he lives in us and works through us and so on. And uh, they're individually priced, but these together are cheaper if you buy them both. And uh, we don't have a lot of, of, of the others. We have lots of this particular one, uh, but you can see at the back there. And there's also a little brochure. There's some guys in Australia who put together a website and an app of my teaching mainly from my years in the People's Church in Toronto. Uh, we had a TV program that went out to about 70 countries, and so they've got some high-quality recordings, and they've put these into, uh, into websites, an app which has transcripts, audio, video, daily devotionals that come in if you sign up for the app. They come in every day and so on. So there's a little brochure there which gives, gives uh, details to that access to that. And it's very easy address anyway, it's just charlespriceministry.org. So it's uh, easy to track down and find. Now Luke chapter 5, uh, sorry, chapter 4. We're looking at this passage when Jesus met the devil in the wilderness. If you want an overall title for it, I'm calling it Temptation, a Positive force in life and why temptation does us good as we learn from the experience of the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to read the first 14 verses uh, this evening. We just read the first couple and the last verse this morning. I'll read the whole section this evening, reading from the New International Version. <coughs> Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and I can give them to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. As I pointed out, the sequence where this appears is after Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and the Holy Spirit had descended in the form of a dove, and the voice of the Father spoke from heaven. One of the few times when all members of the Trinity acting separately together in one event, one of the very few occasions of this, and the voice for the Father came from heaven, this is my Son, with him I am well pleased. I find that interesting because Jesus hasn't done anything. He didn't say, I'm pleased with your miracles, I'm pleased with your teaching, I'm pleased with your sermon on the mount. That was a good one. <laughs> I love your parables. Now I'm pleased that for 30 years you've lived in obscurity and waited and trusted. You see, it's not our activity that pleases God, it's our disposition of trust. Which sometimes means we don't see things that are happening. And then, having been set apart, John the Baptist, having announced, John's Gospel gives these words, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And every Jew listening to John knew what he was talking about because they reenacted the Passover every year where a lamb had been taken, you remember, and slain. And the blood of the lamb had marked the doorpost of every Israelite home. And the angel of death who had come in judgment to Egypt passed over every home marked with blood. Hence it was called the Passover and not only that, but that night, every Jew in Egypt, in bondage for years, ate the meat of the lamb with their coats on their back, their belt around their waist, their shoes on their feet, their staff in hand, ready to run in the strength of the lamb. Because the lamb not only provided the mark of the blood over which they were safe, under which they were safe, but provided the energy for the journey. Beautiful parallel, as we've heard from Peter of the Christian life. Not just to become a Christian, but the equipment to be what we have become. And uh, so now it's out in the open. They know who this is. This is the Messiah that is was waited for for many years. And you might have thought that Jesus would be instructed now by his father, get up on that soapbox and now preach to the crowd down by the Jordan River. Now get out into the city of Jerusalem. Get out into the community and demonstrate through miracles and teaching. But his first assignment, being full of the Spirit, was to be led by the Spirit into the desert, as Matthew explicitly puts it, to be tempted by the devil. 
first assignment in the desert with no food in his stomach, fasting for those 40 days, the devil on his back, tempting him, tormenting him, teasing him, pushing him. And then at the end of it, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And that's when he began his ministry. Now, I made the point this morning, I will keep reiterating this. It's one thing to be indwelt by the Spirit, one thing to be filled with the Spirit. That can be the result of a moment. It's another thing to be entrusted with power. That's the result of a process, usually. In this case, a process of testing and tempting. Because something happened in the wilderness period that equipped Jesus for his ministry. And we're looking at this not because we're having a study in Christology, let's look and see what happened to Jesus, but because we want to know how we too can live in that relationship with God where his indwelling presence and the fullness of his spirit is expressed in things actually happening. And lives being changed. The presence of the Holy Spirit became the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Now, I said this one, there are two perspectives with which we look at this story. One is the devil's perspective and one is God's perspective because led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, he, he is led, so to speak, and then the Holy Spirit hands him over. Okay, now you have him. And from God's perspective and Satan's perspective, the, the same events are very different. From the devil's perspective, it's going to be 40 days of temptation. From God's perspective, the very same thing will be 40 days of testing. From the devil's perspective, his intent is that this is going to be destructive to him. From God's perspective, his intent, this is going to be constructive to him. From the devil's point of view, his intent is that Jesus will be disqualified for his ministry. From God's point of view, the very same thing is intended to qualify him for his ministry. And that's why sometimes those things that appear to us as our enemies, that appear to us as threats, are really going to do us good. In fact, we sang a song or two that included that idea just now already. And uh, I want to look tonight from the devil's perspective and if I've got a, a title for this particular message, I'm going to call it What the Devil Wants of You. What he wanted of Jesus, I think by extension, we can understand that he wants of us. You see, once you've settled certain issues, when we come to Christ and we surrender our lives to him, there are certain things that we settle about how we live. You know, we're not going to go and rob banks. <laughs> we're not going to go and you know, 
attack the neighbors or run off with his, his wife or run off with her, his, her husband. Because we've settled those kind of issues. We're going to live a life that is given over to Christ and over to God. And we, we want to live that in a, in a wholesome, holy way. So the devil's not going to come and say, hey, rob this bank. That issue's already settled. You're not going to budge on that. So he's going to come much more subtly. As he does with the Lord Jesus. And he attacks him in three vulnerable areas which are summed up in a verse that John wrote in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. I'm going to read it from the King James Version because it, it's got a kind of rhythm to it that, that is helpful to us. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. Three areas, he says, are the areas of our vulnerability. The lust of the flesh, natural appetites, the lust of the eyes, greed, the pride of life, our ego. And if you look at specific events of satanic attack in Scripture, he comes down all these lines. I mean, here with Jesus in the wilderness, his first temptation is turn these stones into bread. You've not eaten for 40 days. It says at the end of them he was hungry and he said turn these stones into bread and appeal to his lust of the flesh, to a natural appetite. Nothing wrong with that appetite, of course. And then he took him onto a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He showed him the lust of the eyes. Look at this, look at that. Have you seen that over there? Greed. And then he took him to the highest point of the temple and said, jump off the temple. And instead of your body being crushed when it hits the ground, as would normally happen, he'll send angels to catch you and lower you gently onto the ground. And the word will travel around Jerusalem like wildfire that you are who you claim to be. You're the Messiah. Appeal to pride. Get yourself on the map. Remember when the devil appeared in the Garden of Eden? And uh, I don't know whether Adam was taking a nap or what, but Eve was the one who engaged him in conversation. And it says in Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom, the pride of life. She took some and ate of it. She was beaten. These three avenues all being exploited. Remember David and Bathsheba? Saw her bathing on the roof of her house. Lust of the eyes. Decided he would seduce her. Invited her over. Lust of the flesh. And when she discovered she was pregnant from David, he sent her husband Uriah to the front line of the battle and said to the commander, Joab, make sure you put 
Uriah the Hittite in the most dangerous place in the battle and they fought the Philistines and they were beaten and the messenger came back and said, David, there's bad news and good news. The bad news is we lost the battle. The good news is Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David said, phew, nobody will ever know he's not the father. Pride, covering his tracks. These are the areas in which Satan comes in. These are where we need to build our, our protections. Now, the lust of the flesh is sort of natural, physical appetites, the flesh there being the body, quite literally. Good in themselves, of course, given to us for our benefit. But exploited wrongly. You see, hunger is good. Gluttony is not. Rest is necessary, it's good. Laziness is not. Sex is good, gifted by God. Promiscuity is not. And so these are all things which in themselves are good and wholesome. Hence, our vulnerability in them. And by the way, we probably think that in the lust of the flesh, sex is the, is the big one that people stumble over. It may surprise you to know in the Bible, it is food that is the big one. The Garden of Eden. It was good for food. She took it and ate it. Uh, Remember Esau in Genesis traded his birthright for a plate of stew. He was so hungry. And his brother Jacob, who was younger and a twister, uh, he said to Esau, who was the old one, had the birthright. He said, hey, give me your birthright. You're hungry, I'll give you a plate of stew. And Esau traded it. And it tells us that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Over food. Children of Israel wanted to go back to Egypt because of the food. <laughs> Can you believe it? They wanted to undo their deliverance, backtrack on all the miracles that God had provided for them, lay aside their unique calling, destroy their future destiny, go back into slavery. All over food. Because you remember that in the wilderness, God fed them with manna, which is designed to sustain them, but not satisfy them. The manna was an important provision by God, given miraculously, Six days every day. Enough on the sixth day to last the seventh day when they could lie in, not have to go out and get the manna. And uh, the manna was something they became utterly tired of because, of course, it had some taste. It tasted of honey, it tells us. But in Numbers, it says, Israelites started wailing and they said, if only we had meat to eat. Remember all the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. 
But now we've lost the appetite. We never have anything but this manna, manna, manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna on Monday, manna on Tuesday, manna on Wednesday. It's a birthday party on Friday night. Can I have a birthday cake, Mum? Sure, what kind? Manna cake. <laughs> Just manna, manna, manna. You know, fried on one day and boiled the next and roasted the next and made into manna burgers the next day and put ketchup on the next day and manna pancakes the next day and they said manna, manna, manna live, we're sick of it. <laughs> We'd rather go home. And by the way, do you know why they were eating manna? You say, is this a wonderful provision from God? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense it sustained them, but no, in the sense it never satisfied them. Do you know why? It tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 3 that it's an 11-day journey from Horeb, where God met Moses at, at the burning bush, to Kadesh Barnea, which was the southern city in Canaan, where at one stage they sent some spies in to explore the land. An 11-day journey, and it took them 40 years. Because in disobedience, they stayed in the desert of unbelief. And the manna was given to them. And I think the manna is very interesting because it appeared as dew in the morning, which was wet. Dew is wet, of course. And uh, it was white. When it dried, it was white like coriander seed, it tells us. And it tasted of honey. I think that's a clue as to what the manna is about. It was wet and white when it, land, when it came in the morning. If you saw something that was white and wet on the floor, what would you think it was? Especially on your kitchen floor. <laughs> wet and white next to your fridge, what would you think it was? <laughs> milk. It looked like milk. And it tasted like honey. Where were they going? To a land flung with milk and honey. But because of their disobedience, they didn't trust and obey and go through in the 11 days it could have taken them. They stayed for 40 years in the wilderness, sentenced to stay there because of their unbelief. And God fed them every day with something which looked like the real thing and tasted like the real thing, but was not the real thing. It sustained them, but didn't satisfy them. It's a picture of a man, a woman, a boy or girl who's come into relation with Jesus Christ. They are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the day of redemption. They've got the taste, but they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't enjoy the fullness. And there's nothing more frustrating and having the taste and not the real thing, not the fullness of the real thing. And I think the book of man, uh, the, the, the provision of the manna has a very important lesson to teach us. But you see, going back to our, our main point, they were willing to say, let's backtrack into Egypt. Let's try and do the Red Sea again, but the other way, <laughs> over food. Lust of the flesh. If these natural, good, wholesome appetites are not brought under jurisdiction, control, they will lead us into trouble. 
there's a lust of the eyes. Something looks good. And it creates disquiet amongst us. And so I want it. Advertisers know the power of the lust of the eyes. If you're in the advertising business, you need a text like that across your desk. People respond to the lust of the eyes. I saw a couple of years ago an advert for an advertising agency. And it was telling you why you should do your advertising through this agency. And I, I kept a record of it. And it said in this advert, it takes 250 milliseconds, that's one quarter of a second, for the brain to absorb visual cues, but only 13 milliseconds for images to elicit emotion, even if you aren't fully absorbing what you're seeing. So if you want to create more effective advertising, you should use design and copy that foster an emotional response in your viewers. And then the line underneath said, use neuroscience to improve your advertising. <laughs> One powerful image that can solicit an emotional response hooks you. That's to the eyes. And it's the pride of life. Pride of life, which is, of course, where Lucifer fell, as we saw this morning. Though the greatest of all God's angelic beings, it seems, the morning star, Lucifer, it wasn't enough. I want more. I want to be like God. Pride. Egotism. So these are the three areas that the devil knows that a Christian who has settled this, I'm not going to rob banks and commit adultery and run off with a, whatever. I, I've dealt with that. But he'll say, hey, come on. Satisfy this need, this appetite. He'll say, look, it's better out there. He'll dissatisfy your heart. That's for the eyes. And you'll feed our ego. Let me point out two different things between the temptation of Jesus and the temptation of Eve, because I used that similar pattern, lustly eyes, lustly, sorry, lustly flesh, lustly eyes, pride of life. Eve was tempted to do what was wrong, which is against the direct command of God. You'll not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Jesus was tempted to do what was right but at the wrong time you see it's right to eat food presumably he did very soon after this temptation it was right to him for him to rule the world one day three years later he'd say all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me It'd be right that people recognize who he is. In fact, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, Satan, you're talking about good things. Right things, but the wrong time. And you see, 
The temptations that trip us up are not to do those things that are wrong because we see they're wrong and we put up our defenses and we seek to keep away from them. It's the things that are right at the wrong time. And it's the right things at the wrong time, but often trip us up. That's why the question, is it right or wrong, isn't the only question to ask of something. Is this the right time? I was trying to think this afternoon of a good example of this in, in, in scripture, and there, there are a number, but you remember Abraham when he came from the Chaldees to Canaan. And uh, when he arrived there, he was 75 years of age. I think he intended to have got there earlier, but he got bogged down in a place called Haran in Syria. He came from the Chaldees, which is in present-day Iraq. So he's really an Iraqi. <laughs> he wasn't a Jew. There weren't any Jews. He was the first one from him they came. But uh, he came from Ur down in the Chaldean there. Got there 75, and God said, when you get there, I'll tell you what it's all about. So when he got there, God said to him, when I look up in the sky, how many stars can you see? Lots, he probably said. I'm going to give you a son, Abraham. And from that son will come a nation, and that nation will be as numerous as the stars that you see in the sky. Your wife is going to give birth to a son, and from him will come that nation. That's what this is all about. And it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, all very well and good. Abraham was 75 years of age. His wife, Sarah, was 65 years of age. It was already an impossible situation at that age, but God said it. Abraham said, you said it. I believe it. I believe you. And God credited to him as righteousness. Abraham then had to go home and tell his wife, Sarah, because God didn't tell Sarah. And that must have been a very interesting conversation because the Bible isn't complimentary about Abraham or Sarah. It says about Abraham twice. It says he was as good as dead. So he wasn't a healthy 75-year-old. He was as good as dead. And it says about Sarah, she was 65, that she was worn out. I have no idea why, because she had no children. <laughs> But she was, she was worn out. And it says her womb was dead. Long past the menopause anyway, but never able to conceive. Her womb was dead. She's worn out. She's 65. Abraham's 75. He's as good as dead. And he comes home to Sarah with some interesting news. I can imagine him coming in. She's lying you know, on a beanbag wherever she used to lie all worn out and he came in you know as, as good as dead Sarah <laughs> yes God spoke to me today and what did he say he, he said he's going to give us something <laughs> what's he going to give us you'll never guess give me a clue begins with B Another beanbag? No, not another beanbag. <laughs> He's going to give us a baby. And it says she believed him. I think that's incredible. My wife certainly wouldn't believe me in similar circumstances. <laughs> she wants another opinion at least. 
So she probably started painting the room or knitting, whatever ladies do when they get this information, <laughs> and waited. Three months went by. How are you feeling, Sarah? You been a bit sick in the mornings? No? Sure? Yeah? Yeah, no, I'm fine. Six months went by. Nine months went by. Problems went by. Are you not putting on any weight, Sarah? No? Are you not eating strange combinations like bananas and onions at the same time? No? Two years went by. Three years went by. Five years, seven years, eight years, ten years. Abraham is 85, presumably even deader. She's 75. Even more worn out. The pollen knitting's this high by now. The room's been painted six times. And it's Sarah who brought up the subject in Genesis 16. She said, in effect, if I can paraphrase it, Abraham, did you tell me that, did you tell me that God told you we were going to have a baby? <laughs> yes, it was God who told me, Sarah. Well, where's the baby, Abraham? I don't know, Sarah. Maybe he didn't know how worn out you were. <laughs> Are you sure you weren't smoking something that night? No, I wasn't smoking anything. No, God spoke to me. Well, maybe he didn't know how dead you were, Abraham. <laughs> Takes a while, doesn't it? <laughs> and with 10 years of the promise of God ringing in their ears that they believed, they decide to do the very thing Peter Reed told us not to do this morning. But it sounds reasonable. They dedicated themselves to do the will of God. What's the will of God? You have a child. It's not working. So Sarah, it was her idea, she said, why don't you have the baby through the maid Hagar, which in the culture of the day was not unknown. Hagar, by the way, was an Egyptian servant girl. Abraham, when he was in Canaan, God had given the promises, there came a famine. And so, by the way, when God leads you, he often things often go wrong. There's a famine of all things when he's in the land where he's supposed to be. But Abraham went down to Egypt. Got into trouble, lied about his wife, said she was his sister, so that the king of Egypt could take advantage of her because she wasn't his wife. And eventually they were driven back to Canaan and they brought back with them, conveniently, this young evidently fertile servant girl. By the way, if you go out of the will of God, make sure you jettison what you pick up when you come back. Otherwise, it'll cling to you and haunt you. Now, there's some things we can't get rid of. You go away from God, go out into the world, and you have a baby, keep the baby, look after it, and all that. God will bless you with that. But all kinds of things you pick up, I've seen it. And people I've sat with and talked with in my work as a pastor who've been involved in things that were wrong and they've, they've kept the benefits and they always come back to poison them. And so did Hagar. So Abraham produced a child through Hagar when he was 86. And... Uh, he must have been so thrilled. At last, God, we got a little boy. They called him Ishmael. Got my little boy. Sorry, I didn't think of Hagar before. I was thinking it was worn out Sarah, <laughs> who 
whose room's been dead ever since I've known her anyway. Thank you for this little boy. And Ishmael began to grow up when Ishmael was, uh, when Abraham was 99 years of age, Ishmael was 13. God spoke to him, said, Abraham, as far as you know, the first time God has spoken now for 24 years. Abraham, yes. Remember I told you your wife would give birth to a son? Yes. Well, this time next year, she'll give birth to the son. Beg your pardon? We've already got him. He's called Ishmael. He's, he's 13. He's, he's out there playing baseball. Look, there he is. <laughs> but Sarah gave birth, and it says in Genesis 21, on the very day God had said, he said this time next year, on the very day God had said. Now, I'm not going to go into the story. I'm going to refer back to this tomorrow for another important reason. But you see, Abraham produced Ishmael not because he was being rebellious. He'd long given up hope of having a child. He produced Ishmael out of obedience to what he knew to be the will of God, but by his own resources and scheming. And Ishmael and Isaac have been at loggerheads ever since. And the headline of our news feeds every day this last month has been the situation in Gaza, the tragic situation in Gaza and Israel. I met with a group of Palestinian young people in North Galilee on one occasion. I said, who's the father of the Palestinian race? And they said, Abraham. I said, how come? Through Isaac, through, through Ishmael. Later that same week, I spoke at a youth event of Jewish young people in Jerusalem. I said, who's the father of your race? Abraham. How come? Through Isaac. They both claimed Abraham. He's the co only common hero in the Middle East tonight. Abraham. Now God later says, I'm going to bless Ishmael. He promises later that the uh, Arab people are going to bless the world in the book of, Abraham, uh, book of Isaiah as well. Because God redeems. But we're seeing, what we're seeing played out right now is a consequence <laughs> of Abraham doing the right thing, but in his own time. You see, the problem is not whether it's right or wrong. When you've already settled the fundamentals of that issue with God, I'm not going to go off and do what's wrong. It's doing what's right, but by human resources, in human strength. And so the temptation to Eve was do what's wrong. The temptation to Adam was do, uh, sorry, the temptation to Jesus was do what's right, but I'm tempting you to do it in the wrong time. And it always bring the wrong results, which is his subtlety. The second contrast is that Eve, and by Eve, then most temptation, 
Eve was tempted to give in to weakness, whereas Jesus was tempted to give in to strengths. Jesus was tempted along lines that only he could have been tempted along. I have never struggled with the temptations Jesus I've never walked past a rock when I'm hungry and been tempted to turn it into bread. I never have that temptation because I can't do that. I've never been tempted to rule the world. I've never been tempted to jump off a top of a building and have angels catch me so I'll land safely. These things don't bother me because these are temptations to his strengths, not to weaknesses. And the big danger is that once we have settled the fundamental issues with God, when we become a Christian, say, oh, I'm giving my life over to you, and we've settled, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to commit adultery, I'm going to turn my back on these things. We may have settled those issues in that way. Though be careful, by the way, because he that thinks he stands needs to watch out, says James, because you might fall, so keep your guard up. But you've settled those things basically. But don't think you're then off the hook. Because what Satan tempted Jesus in and will tempt you and me in is to be sufficient in ourselves. Hey, you can turn stones into bread. You can. You can rule the world. You can jump off a temple and survive it. And you see, our strengths can become our stumbling blocks. And I've seen people with amazing gifts and amazing strengths who've gone wrong, gone off the rails because they became self-sufficient in those strengths and began to have a personal agenda attached to them. The agenda of Jesus Christ was never his own, as you know. I do only those things that please the Father. He said on one occasion, And sometimes we can take those things which are strong and we can use them to please ourselves. And so, you see, once a devil knows, I, I don't need to push this person over there because they've closed that door, they've settled that issue. But I'm going to push them where they feel comfortable, where they're strong. Guard your strengths. Don't take them personally. Never take them... Never take the, I remember Carrie Ten Boom. Do you remember Carrie Ten Boom? Maybe not. The older ones will know her story. You do. Who said that? Tell me about Carrie Ten Boom in one sentence. Jewish people during the war. Exactly.
Can you hear all this? Great. Well done. Well done. Did you, did, you, did you see the film or read the book? Or you just know these things? Ah, your mom told me. Oh, that's your mom, right. Okay, good stuff. Great story. I heard Kari Tamboom speak on one occasion. You know, because when she first, by the way, when she first, because she was in prison in Nazi Germany, had to meet with Germans. She came to Cape Mary Hall in England where there were a lot of Germans after the war came over and Curry came to spend time at Cape Mary to get to know and love German young people, which is a huge mountain for her because of her own experience. And she was a, she was a wonderful woman. But uh, she was asked one day, you know, when you go around and you speak and People love your story and you, you bless them and they come and say, thank you, Kari, thank you. Doesn't that make your head grow a bit? She said, you know, when somebody says to me, thank you for what you've said or done, it's as though I, I take a flower from them and I say, thank you for you, what you've said. And they give me a flower. And then somebody else comes and says, thank you for your book. And, I take it, says, and I collect these flowers. And then when I go back to my room at night, I kneel down and I say, Lord, here's your bouquet. So I never keep a flower. I give it all back to him. Beautiful picture. If you're ever tempted to get conceited. Because that's a, that's a stumbling block. Now, how did Jesus, sorry, we're taking a long time here. How did Jesus respond to the devil? Let me look at this. It won't take so long looking at this. We need to know how to respond to him. We're told in the book of James, resist the devil and he'll flee. How do you resist him? Well, look in verse 3. Satan said, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And what did Jesus say to that? Did, did he discuss now, I'm not really very hungry. Of course, he was hungry. He'd been there for 40 days. I know you lose a bit of hunger after fasting a long time. But did he talk about the bread? You say, well, what, what kind of bread is it? You know, is it, is it gluten-free? Uh, is it four grain? I mean, it looks a bit hard to me. Now, he ignored the temptation and said, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. Written where? in the scriptures, written by who? Inspired by God, the Spirit of God. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3, man does not live by bread alone. And then the devil came back in verse 6, I'll give you all the authority and splendor of the kingdoms of this world. It's been given to me, I can give them to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it'll all be yours. What did Jesus say? Did he say, does that include Somalia? I don't want Somalia. I'll take the Caribbean. Is Hawaii in there? <laughs> no. He ignored the temptation and said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Written where? In the scriptures. By whom? By the Spirit of God. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 13. Then verse 9, the devil had him stand, led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from there. And what did Jesus say? Oh, that's a long way down. I'm not very good at heights. <laughs> no, he said, 
it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's written where? In the scripture. By whom? By the Holy Spirit who inspired the text, quoting Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. I don't think it's a coincidence that in these temptations, Jesus quotes each time from three chapters of Deuteronomy. I wonder if he didn't have some of Deuteronomy, a scroll of Deuteronomy with him in the wilderness, and the word was fresh to him. And he took it and uh, he, he used it, not because scripture carries intrinsic power. It's not like he said, it is written, and the devil kind of reels back. <laughs> no, he's saying uh, th this issue has been settled. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and my father put me here, if he'd gone on to explain, my father put me here, and that's what I'm eating, that's my food. He's setting the issue. Years ago, back in my early 20s, I'd started preaching, was doing a lot of youth events and conferences and so on. And I was really troubled by the fact that I was very vulnerable in all kinds of areas. And I thought, you know, if, if I'm tempted in this area, the likelihood I'm, I'm going to fall. And if I'm tempted in that area, the likelihood I'll put up a fight for a while, but I'll start to fall. If this temptation floats across, I'm likely to go for it. And I sat down one day and I decided to write out a list of all the areas of temptation in which... I felt I was weak and vulnerable. And I started to make a list, and I took my piece of paper, and I tore it up, and I got a bigger sheet, because it was a lot more than I'd realized. And I wrote a whole list of things where I knew I was likely to fall. And then I tried to find a verse in the Bible that counted each of these. And to my surprise, I found a verse for every one. I was surprised, I thought, only I had this problem. Other people didn't struggle in this area, and I found a verse for everyone. I thought I invented some of these sins. <laughs> and then I made a short list of the main areas and the key verses, and I, I wrote it out, and I kept it in my Bible, in the front of my Bible, and when I knew I was being tempted or likely to be, if you think I'm going to be in a place where I'm likely to get tempted, get be preemptive. And I'd go and I'd take these verses and say, Lord, this I'm going to stand. I stand on this, this truth. And then one day I was speaking at a, a youth weekend and I left my Bible out somewhere in the, in the lounge and somebody found it, didn't know whose it was, opened it to see whose Bible it was and found this list of sins down the left column and the verses down the right and was intrigued by it and passed it around. And so everybody read my list of sins. So I've never kept one since. That was, that was a long time ago now. But I remember some of those verses. I can quote you some of those verses about my quote-unquote favorite sins. What it meant was that you say, I'm going to stand on this. And sometimes it is hard work. There are all kinds of reasons why we, why we sin, why we become predisposed in some areas, why we have 
kinks in our makeup and our character in our past, our experience, and we need help to unravel some of these, where we find we're constantly falling in the same direction. I, I'm, I'm fully aware of all of that. But it was only after I'd done that that I, I realized that's exactly what Jesus did. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that when I listed these verses. You know, David asks a great question, doesn't he, in Psalm 119 and verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? It would have been just as good a question if he said, how can an old man keep his way pure? Because I know about both. So I remember what it was like as a young man. I know what it's like as an old man. You don't grow out of temptation. And he gives his answer. How does a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. And then he says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Notice, by the way, I've hidden your word in my heart, not just in my head. It's got to get into your head to get into your heart. But not just in my head. You can keep the word of God in your head. You can memorize it and be able to quote it. It's got to come into the center of who you are. It's in our heart. You see... Great verse, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Not his head, most sensible people in their head say there's got to be an explanation somewhere. But in the heart, I don't want it to be God. That's the fool. It's the disposition, the heart. And he says, let the word of God, I've hidden your word, sorry, in my heart. And when your head and your heart are in comfort, you might believe the word of God in your head. In your heart, you, you, you hunger after some kind of you know, sinful things. The heart will always win over the head and you'll go there. Because the man thinks in his heart, so is he. So it's got to get into our hearts. Now here's the interesting thing, and I, I'm close to the end. <laughs> And Charlie made the mistake of saying, don't worry about the clock. Uh, but have you ever noticed how the devil wised up what Jesus was doing? You know, turn the stones to bread. It is written. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It is written. And then he says in verse 9, if you are the son of God, this is the third temptation, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Oh, smarty pants, eh? He's quoting scripture now. Can you believe it? Yeah, okay, I can do that. It is written. Isn't that what you just said, Jesus? Okay, I got one of those. It is written. Uh, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully and they'll lift you up in their hands. Jesus says in the Bible, jump off the temple, the angels will catch you and land you safely. But he stops where he stopped and it wasn't the end of a sentence. You see, some clever preachers know where to stop. You leave out the bits you don't like. <laughs> well, the devil does this because if he read on, it says, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra, you'll trample the great lion and the serpent. Oh, really? Who's the lion? Who's the serpent in Scripture? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a mighty roaring lion, Peter tells us. Uh, from Genesis to Revelation, you know, he comes as the as a serpent calls him in Revelation 20, that ancient serpent who is the devil. So if it read on, and by the way, this is a classic taking scripture out of context or giving half a scripture. Never, never 
take a truth from half a verse. <laughs> Do you know 15 times in the Bible it says there is no God? You could preach an atheist sermon, 15 texts, there is no God, but that's only part of each sentence. There is no God but you. Uh-oh, that changes it. <laughs> That's one sentence. The fool has said there is no God. That's twice it says that and so on. So he takes part of a sentence and, uh, and he justifies what he's doing. Because, you know, if we're not careful, we can make Scripture fit our predisposition towards something which is not true to the Word of God. by taking it out of its proper context. And Satan tries to use the very means Jesus rebuffed him to trip him up the third time if he could. It is written. Yeah, but it's written a lot more than you're going to quote. <laughs> and tries to bring him back almost on his own terms. So listen, you and I are vulnerable and the ultimate bottom line of this is that the Christian life is a life of dependence on God, which it is. It's a life of faith. That means of dependence on God. And dependence on God is expressed in that disposition that says thank you in every situation. It's Thanksgiving Day tomorrow. You said this, I think, it's more about thank you. You say thank you. You say thank you. Lord, I'm scared by this, but thank you. I can trust you. Don't know what to do here, but thank you. I've got up many times in front of a crowd of people. I'm not totally sure what to say and say, Lord, I'm a little bit confused here, but thank you. I trust you. And you trust him to be the source of what's going to take place. And Satan is saying, listen, I'm not going to interrupt your purpose. Be king of the world. Be exalted. Everybody knows you're the son of God. Satisfy your natural appetite. But not in dependence on your father. In independence of him. Another thing in your life and mine that I can live outside of that spirit of dependence upon God is going to be sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Romans 13 tells us the last verse of that chapter. Particular context, but a general principle there. What does not come from dependence on God is itself by definition sin, because it's me doing it for God. You can preach a sermon in sin, and it can be biblically sound. But it's not coming from dependence on God. And so what does the devil want to do to you? What was he trying to do with Jesus? Lead you from dependence to independence. What was he doing with Abraham when he produced Ishmael? Lead him from dependence after 10 years, and there's going to be another 15 years, to act in independence, which he did. And the consequences continue. Now, God had a vested interest in this whole encounter, and so tomorrow morning, and again on Friday morning, we're going to look at what does God want to do with you? 
Why does he let you go through this hardship? Why does he let the devil be on your back like this? He has a purpose, and his purpose is always good. And we'll look at that in the next two mornings. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for every person in this tent tonight. Our journeys have been different, but they've all at some point passed in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where we were reconciled to God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having been reconciled, we might be indwelt by the Spirit of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he in us might now as our Lord reign over us, as our life strengthen us and equip us to be what you want us to be. And we know, Lord Jesus, there are ways to deviate that are put in front of us all the time. Ways to keep us from being dependent. Ways to tempt us to self-sufficiency. Ways to take shortcuts and not be patient in trusting you. And I pray you'll make us men and women and young people who put up our antennas and we recognize them when they come to us and we, we're alert and we learn to trust you and to thank you that you are sufficient for us in those moments of need and crisis and hardships and difficulties. And I pray that as we go back to our homes after these few days, and we go back to our places of work and our communities and our churches, we'll be people who, who live in that quiet but real dependence upon the Spirit of God and that you will bring about your end purposes in your own time as a result. And thank you, we can trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.